Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect Pacific Northwest authors with new listeners and provide advice for inspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. podcast listeners. Thank you for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today we have something very special. I have a guest um, author on who is currently in route to move here to the Pacific Northwest. His name is J.D. Barker. So J.D., you want to say hi to us? Hi, everybody. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, you bet. I'm very much looking forward to having J.D. on listeners because J.D. has a really great history of publishing, and um, I view him as a success. I have a connection through him, with him through a PR person that let me know about J.D., so, so we're just going to dive right in. Um, but J.D., right now, currently, you're not in the Pacific Northwest, but you were telling me a little bit about how you're trying to wrangle the idea of coming to the Northwest, so tell us a little bit about your interest in our beautiful state. <laughs> My, yeah, my wife and I, we're, we're kind of wanderers, and we've, we've been bouncing around quite a bit. We, we started off in Florida, um, and we, we love the, you know, being near the ocean and the water and things like that. But if you've ever been to Florida, particularly in the summertime, you, you can burn to a crisp just walking to your mailbox. The, the sun is just brutal there. Uh, and we just couldn't take that anymore. And when I got to the point where I was, I was writing full time and we could kind of live anywhere, um, we, did, we decided to make a move. Um, we're actually in Pittsburgh right now because my wife is, has quite a bit of family up here. Um, and it's just, it's, it's so much nicer. I mean, because in the summertime you can actually go outside and you can do things. And, you know, we've got the, you know, obviously the winter is a lot more harsh up here, but it's, it's, it's nice. Um, but we've, we've been here for, I guess, about two and a half, three years now. And we're, we're both feeling very landlocked. We really miss being near the water. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we've been looking at, um, the, you know, the East Coast um, in the New Hampshire area. Uh, we also, we flew out to, to your area, I guess, about a year and a half ago now. And we looked re- very heavily on the, uh, around Whitby Island and, and mm-hmm. the, the island up there. Uh, and we just, we completely fell in love with, with that. I mean, just the, the views and the, the houses and the people and everything. It was, it was great. So, yeah, so that's where our focus is right now. Well, we welcome you to come. You better buy a house soon. Woodby Island is still in a reasonable <laughs> housing market, but <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't talk about it on the podcast. Too many no, people are going to no, find exactly. out. Well, if you listen to my podcast, my listeners know I discourage people moving here, but we'll take you. You're you're okay. <laughs> okay. So so yeah, but the beautiful thing about the Northwest is that it it does it is it has this beautiful season changes, and we're right now getting into the October weather. And so that's why we're talking to JD. So JD, share with our listeners that don't know about you yet, a little bit about your genre, because it's span, it, it's kind of been, or, you know, mixed in, you know, but it fits in October very well. So share what you label your genre of writing. I actually, I, I give a talk about um, not being pigeonholed into a genre. I like Because that's something that, that happens pretty much from the get-go. I mean, I self-published my first novel, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But the first novel was, was horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wrote my second novel, and it was a, a full-on thriller. And I, I you know, queried agents with that, and I, I ended up going the traditional route. And immediately, you know, they, you know, they dubbed me as a thriller author and, you know, that, that's where they want me to be. And, and it makes sense. I mean, because everybody needs to know, they need to know where to put you in you know, the bookstores. They need to know where to yeah, market you yeah. and all those types of things. So they'd like to put that label on you straight off the bat. Um, but I'm scared to death of getting stuck writing that same book over and over again. <laughs> oh, I hear you. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I, I'm, I made a, a conscious effort here to, to bounce around a little bit. So my first novel was, was horror. The second one was a thriller. My third one is a, a prequel to Dracula that I wrote with Bram Stoker's family. Um, mm-hmm. So we're back to horror again. And then I've got another thriller coming out. Um, so I'm, I'm bouncing around a little bit. And, and honestly, I've, I've gotten to know a lot of famous writers and Dean Kuhn sent me a really cool email early on that really helped me with this. Uh, because he, he mentioned um, that he put out 15 novels before he had his first bestseller. And I, I didn't realize that. Oh, and wow. he told me he, he, that first bestseller was uh, a horror novel. And he said he immediately got dubbed as a horror novelist. Mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. started showing up, you know, all of his marketing material and every, you know, interview he did, every newspaper article that came out, it was horror author this, horror author that. And he never felt that he was a horror author. He felt that, you know, that he was a suspense author. And, you know, he might include horror, he might include something else, but, you know, not, not definitively horror. Um, so, you know, I kind of took a page from that and I've been kind of doing the same thing. And he said, as long as you do it early on, you know, and you, and you do bounce around, the, the audience will be open to it. 
if, if you know if I were to put out four or five horror novels in a row and then try to put out something different, it's going to yeah. be a lot more difficult to sway people. Yeah. Uh, my agents yeah. come around to it. She she seems to be on board, and now we're just trying yeah. to convince the publishers that it's the, the right way to go. I love it. Well, I embrace that idea because as you and I were talking, um, I am an aspiring author, so I'm working on my first two novels, but they're very different novels altogether. And um, I I usually lead in my interviews about genre because most people will just kind of stick with one genre. But I love the idea of not being pigeonholed. I think in our society today, with the way the publishing industry is changed, that you might not have to. And that's pretty exciting from a writer standpoint. <laughs> you know, if some something comes to you and you're inspired it doesn't fit that genre that you usually typically write in i think it's exciting not to have to so yeah. fantastic I, I do think you, you do need to keep that common thread i think dean was right about that and and mm-hmm. i tend to keep you know every one of my novels has a, a very strong element of suspense and that mm-hmm. probably is my common thread between all of them i don't mm-hmm. think you could you know you couldn't jump from like romance to western to sci-fi yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it couldn't be crazy leaps like that but as long as they're they're right next door to each other i think you're okay I, and I agree with you too. And I think that the advice that I get from a lot of individuals too is that you're going to typically write what you read, what you prefer to read. You're going to be very more interested in writing kind of in that that scope and that scale. And so so you must have read a lot of suspense, thriller, and horror, you know, growing up and moving on. I did read your bio, so I know you did. But yeah. <laughs> <Was> that, <laughs> is that typically where you land when it came to reading? Was that kind of work? You know, it's funny because, you know, looking back on it, that's actually where I started out. And Mm -hmm. I I never really thought about it much until I started picking things apart. But we we didn't have a television in our house when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. TV was kind of a forbidden thing. And, you know, back this this was the 70s to really date myself. I mean, there wasn't much to watch anyway. You had had three channels. Um, No no, no DVR. So, you know, whatever you turned on happened to be on. Um, So we we were heavily into books. And my, my mom owned an antique store. Um, so she would, you know, drag us along to garage sales and yard sales and estate sales and things like that on a fairly regular basis. Um, so I was, I was reading from a very young age. She put books in our hands pretty much right away. And we used to go to the library a couple times a week. And when I would go to yard sales, you know, I'd, I'd have my allowance money and I would use it to buy books. I love um, it. And some of the first, first ones that I bought were the, um, you know, the first, what I consider to be, you know, like big kid books or adult books. I, I bought the um, Hardy Boys um, series mm-hmm. um, and the, the Nancy Drew series. I bought like yeah. a big old box of them for like a buck 25 or something. And it's oh, I, half the I read all of them. I think the Nancy Drew's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, they're fantastic. And, yeah, I, you know, yeah. and then, but they're, they're mystery novels. So I think that's kind of what got me started along that. I, mm-hmm. I read all those by the time I got into kindergarten um, and then I, I started graduating into more, you know, like adult books or younger, you know, what would probably be young adult nowadays, um, you know, Treasure Island and, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the Charles Dickens stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first, you know, what I felt was an adult book that I picked up was Dracula. Um, ah. I remember buying that one when I was eight years old. I remember buying it for 25 cents and haggling wow. with the guy to get him down from 50 cents. And, you know, and it's one of those books that's been a constant on my, my bookshelf. I mean, it's, you know, I, it gets worn out. I replace it. I get I another it. one. And at, at this point, I've got the ebook. I've got the audio book. I've got mm-hmm. you know every every possible version. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to read you know cross cross genre quite a bit. I, as long as it's a good story, I really don't care what the genre is. Awesome. Well, I love it. Well, I think that's great. We'll we'll wrap back around to Dracula because you have a history now with Dracula. <laughs> so very yeah. fascinating history. But let's start with one other question for our listeners. When did you know you were a particular author? Was was it young? Kind of walk us through that process of when you it dawned on you the power of creation through through writing as an author. Well, you know, again, it's one of those things that, you know, until you look back on it, you don't realize that it's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but because my mom used to take us to the library all the time, I, I have a sister who's 15 months younger than me. So we, you know, we kind of hung out a lot together and we did a lot of stuff together. Um, I, I used to create stories, like I would write stories when I was little and I would staple them and I created my own little library in my room. <laughs> I and love my it. sister would come in and she would check out, you know, my stories. Oh. And, and I, when, when she didn't return them in time, I whacked her with late fees, which I think she, at this point she probably owes me a ridiculous amount. I love it. You're, you're speaking um, to a librarian here so my background oh okay this is like making me sing yay this is great so continue (laughs) i love the story (laughs) yes i I think that's kind of where it started and and you know our parents kind of threw us in the middle of it anyway because my my father was a contractor and we we lived um in crystal lake illinois you know which had nothing to do with jason but Mm -hmm. um it was called crystal lake illinois and he he bought a a big old forest it was it was probably i think it was like 20 acres or so you know these 
big old oak trees and he built a giant English Tudor like in the middle of it. Oh, um, and all, all of our friends just, you know, straight off assumed that we were in like a haunted house and the forest <laughs> was haunted and, you know, little kids just kind of make up stories about that. So I think the yeah. first few stories that I wrote were, were based around that and, you know, just kind of evolved from there. I love it. Such great stories. Thank you for your parents for allowing your creativity to come out very young and didn't stifle it. That's fantastic. And, and so awesome. So oh, they, they tried, they, they tried, tried later oh, yeah? <laughs> when my, when my mom realized that I was heading in, in the, the writerly direction and, and planning <laughs> on trying to make a living at that, you know, that she, she wanted me to go to college and, and get yeah. an actual degree. And, and I did, I've actually got two and a half degrees right now. I've got okay. one in business, another one in information technology. And I started on a psychology degree oh, wow. um, and now I get paid to make shit up. So none of it yeah. actually mattered. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. <laughs> but yeah, no, they, they always felt that this was, you know, a hobby and like not one of those things that you can really make a living at. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'd like to think that I proved her wrong, but I just saw her the other day and, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. And she's like, yeah, but it's not a steady paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like working for somebody else where you've got benefits and you've got that, but you know, I it, love it. I love those internal, um, motivators are so helpful, even if it's something like that, right? Because I feel oh, like absolutely. I feel like you're terribly successful. We're going to talk a lot about your success here because I want the listeners to hear the process. You know, we'll get there. But um, those internal motivators, you know, we all have, we all should have them, right? And um, to help us keep moving. I, I have my degrees and I have a great career in higher education. You know, I love what I do, but I didn't feel fulfilled. And I knew that writing was going to be that piece to be the fulfillment, you know, for, for my future. And so I think it's awesome that you, you power through, you know, you, you, did you do before your first book came out in 2012, were you working a regular job and you're writing on the side? I call it side hustle. Were you doing the side hustle? (laughs) Were you like, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think pretty much everybody in this business kind of does that. Um, my, my last real day job, and this, this sounds horrible, and it really was. It, I was the chief compliance officer for a brokerage firm. Oh, no, um, that's, so that's great writing material right there. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's actually, it's a bad thing because it paid really well. It was a horrible yeah. job, but it paid paid really good. And I, I think that's actually a negative. And like, if you talk to Stephen King, he's going to tell you one of the things that really motivated him is he worked some horrible jobs. He worked yeah. in a laundromat. You know, he, yeah. he did these things that he just, he did not want to go to work every day. And that forced him to go home and write to try and yeah. find a way out of it. Exactly. Um, while, I, while I was doing that, I was working as a, a book doctor and a ghostwriter on the side. Because mm-hmm. um, most most writers will tell you that you know I, I had no problem writing for free. I you know I enjoyed yeah. doing it. it. It was my my detox. It's what you know kept me grounded. Mm-hmm. Um, it's awesome that people want to pay me for it now. But if that stopped tomorrow, that wouldn't keep me from writing. I would still exactly. you know, hit my Mac every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would work a day job, and I would I would I would basically come home and I would work on on other people's books. And I, I did that for for a little over twenty years, for about twenty three years. Um, and it, it really, I think that's where I really learned how to write, um, because I got to figure out what worked and what didn't work, what agents were looking for, what editors wanted to see. And it really allowed me to, to fine tune my, my own craft. And uh-huh. during that, you know, I, I was working on my own books at the same time, but you know, I, I don't sleep a whole lot. Yeah, um, doesn't sound like it, but, but I just, I enjoyed it. And I, I ended up having over, over the 23 years, six different books that hit the New York times bestseller list, but they always, they had somebody else's name on them. Oh. And that, you know, when, when number six hit that, you know, that was kind of the, the final one for me. And that's yeah. where I decided to, to strike out on my own. What a, what a great background though. I don't see that as a negative. I see that as a, like you said, it's a great positive in the sense that first you got to see probably good writing, marginal writing, not so great, you know, kind of that thing. So you got to see what is important for the market. You probably got to, did you get to witness kind of the publishing process as well as you're working with those individuals, those six individuals, how it moved for them. So you got a little bit of background in the industry a little bit. Yeah, I mean, because a lot of the the work that I got, um, it, it came from basically three people. It was either authors that had a novel that you know, an agent just wasn't willing to pick up on, or saw something in and told them, you know, do this week, do that week, mm-hmm. um, weren't able to do it on their own. So, eight, uh, authors were a big part. Um, agents were another part because a lot of times an agent will give that feedback to an author and an author is just too close to make the changes. Exactly. Um, so sometimes mm-hmm. the agents would send it to me and, and sometimes it ended up with an editor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an editor's got a, a client, you know, that's either too busy, you know, to, you know, they're on a book tour, you know, especially when these guys start taking off and they're trying to figure out how to juggle everything. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, you know, so they've got a new book on, the editor's got a new book on their desk and it needs to be tweaked, but the author's not available or doesn't have time to do it. Um, so they would, they would send me stuff. So I kind of got to work with, with all these people behind the scenes 
and that really clued me in into you know what they wanted. One of the things that I really learned that I didn't realize, and it's true today more than any any time, is editors are, are ridiculously busy. Mm-hmm. And they've got a giant stack of books on their desk, and the last mm-hmm. thing they you know want to do or have time to do is to take on a project. Mm-hmm. So the, the more polished you get your novel before it gets to that point, the, the better. I mean, if, if an editor picks it up and they they give it that one read. Um, and they realize, hey, this is a pretty solid book, and I don't have to do a whole lot to it. Um, two things happen. They're, they're more likely to pick it up, and you're more likely to get a bigger advance. I love that. I, I think that's valuable advice for anybody that's aspiring or working on their first novel, or maybe they have a couple of novels out as independent authors, and they want to make the jump to traditional. Value, valuable advice. I think we picture you know, it's just hard to picture the industry because you can't see what's going on behind the scenes. So if you get a rejection letter or something like that, you know, it's hard to understand maybe the total reason for, obje- you know, rejection. <laughs> so I think no, a lot of times they don't tell you, you get no. a wrong letter and yeah. you know, that's, that's it. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, that's a great background into leading us into your very first book in 2012. I think it was Forsaken, correct? And that was the book you self-published. So take us on the journey of that novel and getting to self-publication. Kind of why did you choose self-publication? A lot of my authors on the podcast choose self-publication, but why did you particularly? You had some background. You knew what people were looking for. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, okay. So number six at the New York Times bestseller list, and that's where I decided to to write my own book. Um, And for Satan, I I, I had the idea in my head. So I, I hammered out the novel itself pretty quick. Um, and anybody who's written a novel, they, they know, you know, you just, you want to get to that finish line. And mm-hmm. in the story, I had to explain where the wife bought a journal and to get the book done to get that. I wrote that she walked into Needful Things, Stephen King's store, yeah, um, and yeah. bought it there. And, and I fully expected to have to change that, you know, change it to, you know, wanted things, you know, some, some other, you know, yeah. whatever it might be, but, you know, swap it out with something, but permission to use it. Like, um, how do you get Stephen King's permission to do much of anything? Exactly. Um, we decided to, <laughs> yeah, we decided to give that a shot. He's, he's got a house in Florida that's um, about 10 minutes from my parents' house. Uh, so we printed out the manuscript. We hopped in the car. We figured, well, well, we'll go over to Steve's house. He'll probably be outside gardening or something. And I'll, you know, hand him off the book. He'll give me the thumbs up and we'll be on our way. Um, it didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> he lives on, um, on Casey Key. And, and Keys in Florida are, are like little islands right off through the coast. And there's a, a one-lane bridge that you go over, and it's one of those kind that swivels in the in the center to let the boats go by. And when you get to the end of the bridge, if you make a left, you go to the public portion of the key where all the restaurants and the beaches and stuff are. And if you make a right, you go to, like, the entire half that Stephen King owns. And immediately there's a, a private drive sign, and then there was a no trespassing sign. Then there was a gate, and then there was another gate. And, like, I got maybe a half mile in, and I'm staring up into the trees looking for snipers, and I'm thinking this is probably a bad idea. So... We turned the car around and we went to a little restaurant and I reached out to a friend of mine. His name was Jack Ketchum. He, he passed away a couple of months ago um, and told him what we were up to. And he knows King pretty well. And he said, oh, yeah, don't stalk Steve. He hates that. Here's his email address. <laughs> Just email it over to him. If he likes the book, you'll hear back from him. If you don't hear anything, the book probably sucks. Leave the guy alone. Oh, um, so, so, yeah, so I, I did that. And then I you know, got an email back from, from King and he said, I, I wow. love it. Go ahead and use it. Let me know if you need anything. And I oh. stared at that for probably about four months, you know, waiting for the, you know, another email to come in saying, oh, yeah, that exactly. was actually meant for, for Grisham or somebody yeah. else, not Oops. you. But Sorry. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it never came. So I figured, okay, now I'm, I'm a first time author, but I've got a book that Stephen King read and gave me a thumbs up on to use some of his stuff. How hard could this possibly be? Yeah. So I put together a query letter. Um, and I shot it off to 200 agents. It was just some list that I downloaded from a, a you know a news group or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and just shot off the same form letter to every single one of them, which is a big, mm-hmm. big no-no. Um, mm-hmm. Never use a form letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I only got a handful of responses back. Um, no rejections because nobody actually asked, asked to read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, the couple that did, I had um, one offer from a publisher, but the, the advance was only like 5,000 bucks. I and mean, the, the attention I was getting just was very minimal. And at the mm-hmm. time I didn't know it was because of the query letter. I, you know, I didn't oh. realize what I had done wrong. Gotcha. Um, so gotcha. I, you know, I made a conscious decision. I said, well, okay, let me, let me do this. I'm going to self publish the book, but I'm going to do it in a way that it, it's going to be on par with something coming out of random house. I've got to make sure it's that, you know, yeah. formatted that way. It looks that way. Other, otherwise yeah. it's not worth doing. Exactly. Um, so I hired professionals across the board. I got, you know, editors, formatters, professional cover design and, and all of those things and then released the book, you know, totally self-published as a hardcover, softcover, um, audiobook, mass market paperback. Everything came out on the same day. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
then things just got crazy from there. It, it you know, started catching on. People started picking it up and, you know, word of mouth spread. Cause I, I, I kind of screwed up on the advertising and the marketing portion too. I didn't realize that most publications like to see the book months in advance of it coming out. Oh. Um, so I didn't even try until, yeah. until after the, you know, I hit the publish button. So that, that kind of yeah. hindered me a little bit. Well, great um, the book, advice. The book ended, hearing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the book ended up selling really well. It sold about a quarter million copies or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was enough to, to land me on the radar of the, the traditional guys. But mm-hmm. it also, if, if you self-published anything, you, you know the economics there. I mean, as a self-published mm-hmm. author, you're getting 70 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. And if you're traditionally published, you're probably going to get 25 cents on the dollar. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, during all of this, while this was going on, I was writing my second book, which was The Fourth Monkey. Uh, and I and I fully expected to self-publish that one too because I was doing really well financially. I you know was totally in control of everything. I didn't yeah, have to answer yeah. anybody. Yeah, um, no I told my, told my wife that. <laughs> yeah, so I re- I told my wife that I was thinking about self-publishing, and she's you know again she's way smarter than me. She said, "Well, go ahead and send it out to a couple of agents, see what happens, and you know if you don't get any bites again, then yeah, go ahead and self-publish. It worked out good." Mm-hmm. Um, so I I queried uh, fifty three agents. I remember this was February of um, two thousand fourteen. And within two weeks, I had uh, 13 offers of representation. So awesome. It, it, it was kind of well, a very different. Well, you the letter, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what's funny is that, you know, at, at that point, it didn't um, it, it didn't even fit like a store, standard form query letter at all. I mean, I, I yeah. didn't even mention the book, I think, until like the third paragraph. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I just kind of talked about some of the things that were, were going on in my, my writerly life. But you also, um, but you had already from that book had developed an authoritative aspect in the sense that your first self-published book was doing very, very well. So you didn't really need to have an agent and go that traditional route you were choosing to. And that, that probably is a little attractive to agents as well as publishing companies because you already have that platform developed. They don't have to groom you into the platform. Does, does that make, is that how it felt to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the self-publishing model, I think they use that as a proving ground at this point. Mm-hmm. Everybody's watching it. You know, yeah. Amazon in particular, I mean, they've got mm-hmm. their own imprints. They, they know exactly who's selling and who's not. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're picking from that lot. You know, you, you can still get a traditional deal, you know, straight off the bat with your debut novel. But, I think, you know, for me anyway, it really helped to, to be able to walk in there with a track record. I love it. Yeah, I think and and you have to be ready. You have to be ready to walk away too. You know, mm-hmm. I, and I think they, they kind of felt that I, I would. I mean, I had no reason why I couldn't have self-published the next exactly. book if I didn't want to. Exactly. And there's plenty out there of people that are making it very well, great livings and income on self-publishing. But you know, they have to market not just fictional novels, but they're also doing novel uh, books for self-help. I mean, they they really dabble in a bunch of other genres to in to develop that income that static income um and not everybody has the desire to do that you know they may just want to write and that's what they want to do for their living and so but they better be great writers (laughs) if that's what they want to do in my opinion and you know this is so this is so fascinating jd thanks so much for sharing that process with me particularly because i'm always on the fence and and you know I, i if you you knew this from talking to me a few minutes ago but i'm working on my first two novels and that's what started this podcast was really like what's out there on the landscape of of traditional versus independent publishing and since I've had so many authors come on in different aspects and they some have moved like you not as successfully but some have moved from you from you know self-publishing to traditional then it's fascinating to me and it's inspiring to me you put out your first book with the idea that it has to be the same quality as anything that's traditionally published. And I think that's fabulous. fabulous advice. Well, that's the biggest mistake I see people make. I, I go around the country now and I, and I give a talk about how I actually did this and how I mm-hmm. sold that many copies. And the biggest problem I see people do is they hit that publish button way too early. I agree. You know, they get that first, they get their first draft done. They feel that it's a hundred percent perfect. Uh, you know, they run through it all on their own and, you know, try to, to self edit, which is impossible. Yeah. And then they just hit that publish button. And I see the same thing happen over and over again. They get four or five reviews from their mom and their friends, you know, telling yeah. them how great it is and you know, yeah. four and five star reviews. And then yeah. somebody real actually buys the book. And yeah. it's a, you know, it's a two star review complaining about the punctuation and the grammar problems yeah. and how yeah. wordy it is. And, you know, all these little things that, you know, can be worked out. I mean, I go through the same process today with my traditionally published stuff that I did with Forsaken. I, mm-hmm. I basically go through about five or six different drafts. 
Um, I, I write the first draft locked in my room and then I polish it as well as I you know, feel I can. Then my wife reads it and she completely tears it apart and hands it back, tells me everything that's wrong with it. Um, I, I cry for a couple of days and I go back <laughs> in my office and I write it again. Um, after I get done with that part, it goes out to beta readers and I've got, you know, six, on my last book, six very critical beta readers. One of them actually gave me a one-star review on Forsaken. Um, but she was, she was right. I mean, I read through her review and she had some good points. Um, so I asked her to take her review down in exchange for being a, a beta reader. Um, but you know, I've got some very critical people and, and to me, like each one of them represents, you know, like 10,000 in sales. So if they yeah. find something wrong, you know, 10,000 other people are going to find that same thing wrong once I put it out there, if I let it get that far. Uh, so I, you know, take all their feedback and I, and I rewrite the book again. And then once I get through that process, then it goes out and I, I've got a copy editor that runs through it. And then I you know, clean up her version of it. And then once that's done, then it finally goes to my agent. So, you know, we're mm-hmm. four or five trapped in before I mm-hmm. let anybody see it. Mm-hmm. And then that's her books that are coming out through the traditional guys. I mean, mm-hmm. once Random House gets a hold of it, you know, they, you know, it goes through my, my editor at, at the publishing company, then, you know, their copy editors and, you know, they've got people that do this whole thing all over again. So, you know, this book is, you know, any book really is it um, from my standpoint, go through this over and over and over again. But, you know, it's, it's the only way to, to get it as tight as it, it possibly can be. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I've been struggling personally. So you're just inspiring me today. So thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I I'm working on drafts, you know, and I'm working on these drafts and I feel like, Oh, it's, I'm never going to get it out. Never going to get out. But I have learned and I've listened to enough people to know your first couple of drafts, you're telling yourself the story. It doesn't mean that it's clear and, and good enough for readers yet, you know, and, and you have to have those other eyes, those editors, you have to, you have to pretty much hire an editor if you're going to self publish to do some editing, copy editing, and you need to have really critical reviewers. So I had one of my um so one of my good close reviewers is also related to me but she hold she's no holds bar and she i read some of the stuff to her this weekend and she was very critical and it hurt at first <laughs> and i was like ouch that hurts but then when i started thinking about it i'm like i'm so glad you said those things because if you can pull those pieces out like you said others will find it so i need to go back and fix those pieces so it's really valuable to have that collaboration no matter what you're doing independent or or traditional so thank you for sharing that so let's go into some more collaboration because you've had some you have some pretty high high profile collaborators you've been working with lately and so (laughs) so which I think is really exciting and as an author standpoint that's like that's like what you dream for right so tell us about Dracula because I believe by the time this podcast comes out that book will be released in October of this year so tell us about that and how your collaboration there got started because it's absolutely fascinating yeah, I keep telling people that I've captured lightning in a bottle a couple of times and you know, not to stand next to me outside because karma is going to try to even everything out at some point and you don't <laughs> want to be standing next to me when, when that final lightning strike happens. I love um, it. I, I thought, you know, I, I thought with what happened with Stephen King was, you know, that was huge and, you know, mm-hmm. I figured that, that's it for me. That's, that's going to be the big tale that I have. Um, but it didn't turn out that way. So Forsaken got nominated for a Bram Stoker Award for Best Debut Novel. And while I was at the, the conference, the horror writers conference, I met Dacre Stoker, mm-hmm. um, who's Bram, Bram Stoker's great grandnephew, the guy who wrote on um, Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we ended up sitting next to each other at an author signing. And I found out later that actually wasn't a, a mistake. It was actually an audition. He wanted, he wanted to meet me and talk to me before oh, that's he presented cool. something to me. Um, so we, <laughs> we sat next to each other for about an, you know, an hour, hour and a half or so. And you know, I had a living, breathing Stoker next to me. So I was picking his brain about everything Dracula related. And, and he kept asking me questions about, you know, my, my writing career. And I'm like, well, why is he even bothering? I'm, you know, I'm still yeah. nobody at this point. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we talked for, you know, that hour or so. And then we kind of went our separate ways. And he kept, kept you know, grabbing me in the, the hallway saying, hey, we need to sit down for five, ten minutes. I've got something I want to run by you. And it was just, it was so crazy. We didn't really get a chance to do it. So we made plans to have breakfast on the, the final morning that we were all there. And halfway through the breakfast, he said, listen, I've got something I've got to admit to you. I, I read Forsaken a while back and my family's read it. And we've been trying to find some way to write a prequel to Dracula for a while now using Bram's original notes. And we feel your style is a really good fit for that. Is that something you'd be interested in? Oh, my and, goodness. You know, I, was half, I was halfway through my eggs, and I think I dropped half my plate. <laughs> I would have choked. Looking around the room. Yeah, I was waiting for Ashton Kutcher to come right now in front of the corner <laughs> exactly. over the camera and tell me I was getting punked. Um, but it, it turned out it was for real. So he, he invited my wife and I up to the cabin that he had in the Carolinas. Um, on the second night we were there, he, he disappeared for a little bit. And he came back with his big old wooden box. 
and set it down on the, the dining room table, you know, as theatrically as you can possibly imagine, and opened it up, and it and it was the items that were on Bram's desk when he wrote Dracula. Oh my um, heaven! He, he, he had maps, he had scraps of paper, he had you know one of uh, Bram's original journals. I mean, all kinds of crazy material. Like I, part of Dracula was written in the daytime, or I, I had no idea. Um, but Bram Stoker worked in a the theater. He was a theater manager. So yeah. he used a daytimer to, to plot out his, his novel. And that makes sense. I mean, when you think about it as a writer, you're trying to get all your days and your times and everything organized. Yeah. So why not use the daytimer? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and one of the things that he shared with me, which I didn't realize, is the first 101 pages of Dracula actually got stripped from the book. Um, so Jonathan Harker on the train, which is the beginning that we all know, is actually on page 102 of the, the original novel. Oh. Bram, Bram originally tried to sell Dracula as a true story. Uh, the original preface for the book and, and everything in the, the first hundred pages, he, he basically handed it to his publisher and said, this is a true story. And his publisher, you know, read it, slid it right back across the desk and said, no way, we're not doing that. Um, at, at the time in London, Jack the Ripper was running around. Yeah, people yeah, were scared, exactly. scared half to death. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we all saw later what happened with War of the Worlds. So I think that's yeah. kind of what his publisher was thinking. We exactly. People that way. So yeah. they, they spent a lot of time, you know, tweaking the novel and basically turning it from fact into, into fiction. Um, and then that, you know, it was finally published. Um, Bran hated that idea. I mean, he really, in his mind, and from what we found in his notes, he wanted Dracula to serve as a warning to people. He, he mm-hmm. It seems like he actually believed vampires were real, and he wanted mm-hmm. the story to, to present that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually found a way to make that happen, which I thought was really clever. In, in today's world, i got to backtrack a little bit, but like sure. I published yeah. a novel. Um, I, I send it off to my agent, and my editor gets it here in the U.S., and you know, I'm in, I think, 31 different languages at this point. So my editor in the U.S. will farm it out to all those other publishers, and then they translate it and they put it out. Um, but I'm working off one draft the entire time. Mm. His time, when he did this, he had his U.K. publisher, but then when he started getting picked up in other countries, you know, the, the draft of the book actually left from his desk. Um, it didn't come from his publisher. So he was able to take a lot of the stuff that the U.K. publisher took out of the book, and he put it back in before he sent it off to these other countries. <laughs> so what Dacre uncovered um, through some other people is that you know, there, if you grab a first edition of Dracula from you know, in foreign language and you translate it to English, there's some serious differences there. There's, oh. there's differences in the storylines. There's different characters. Um, Fascinating. Dracula had a love interest at one point. There's other people in the castle. All kinds of crazy things that you know didn't make it into this final book. I love it. Um, but it's so diff- you have to go to a first edition because Dracula being public domain, you know anybody can publish it at this yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. So even, yeah. even when they go foreign language, they tend to work off the you know the, the Gutenberg version that, mm-hmm. you know, that's available on the internet. So they're working mm-hmm. off that same K edition. Mm-hmm. So they're they're still finding stuff. They they found a ton of material in the Icelandic version. They're finding more in um, a version that came out of Germany. Um, and it, it's crazy. Absolutely um, awesome. Where, the, the, yeah, <laughs> the, the book that the book that we wrote it's called Dracul, and it, it focuses very heavily on on the, the missing text from those first hundred and one pages. Oh, I love it! I love it, and it comes out October two thousand eighteen. Correct. Yep, October second. Yep, because I saw your countdown on your website. We're listeners. We're recording this a little bit before um, the first of October, but we're we're releasing this in October, so you can grab the book probably by the time it comes out. So, very very cool. So. Um, did it take you a while to wrap your mind around working with this, this material? I mean, for me, it feels like sacred, it would feel like sacred material. I would have a hard time, you know, wanting to even dig into it. That's the library inside of me, you know, that. Yeah, no, it it, it absolutely, it absolutely did. I mean, it was, you know, that's kind of, Dracula is kind of the Holy Grail. And I told you it was one of the first books that I read as a kid. Yeah. And, you know, to see that kind of, you know, detail and get a peek behind the curtain was, was huge. Um, Paul Allen, who was one of the co-founders of Microsoft, he actually invited us out to Seattle at one point to view the original Dracula manuscript because he, he's got it. Um, oh, he spent about eight hours that. in the conference room fl- yeah, flipping through um, the pages. Yeah, yeah and, and that, that, that to me was probably the, the coolest part about it because you've got the actual typed document in front of you and you've got Bram's handwritten notes on the side and you've got notes from his editor and a you know, big blue crayon-looking pen. Um, you know, stuff like that. And, and, and the funny thing is like those comments aren't very different from what we see in today's world. You know, like there's, I love this part from his editor, this part's terrible, you know, replace, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. It's the yeah. same things that, that we get nowadays from our, our editor, except it comes in a micro, Microsoft Word document. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. But that, that, that was huge. Um, a lot of the text actually came from Bram's notes in his journals. Um, so we had to really match his voice and his cadence. Mm-hmm. That was probably the trickiest part. I, I think the whole time I was writing that book, I, I listened to the audio book for Dracula on just constant repeat, mm-hmm. um, just to keep his, his writing style and his, his, his sentence structure in my head. 
Um, and, and I think it worked. I mean, it, it, I, I can't tell half the time when I'm looking at it, which parts were his and which you know, came from us. So I That's think we played it off. fascinating. A totally different writing process than if it was just you coming up with a, a muse and a story in your own your own head and your own mind. That's that's a re- I would think a huge challenge to carry on the same writing voice as an author like that. So, well, we also had to end the book, and you know everybody knows where Dracula starts. So, yes. you know, I had certain characters like I couldn't kill Dracula because obviously he's in the next book. You know, so mm-hmm. things like that that we had to play into as well. So mm-hmm. it was definitely tricky. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Absolutely love. I love the story. And since we're in the October theme, I'll, I'll reveal just a little bit about my love for um, the horror. My all time, 100% all time favorite story is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Like to this day, I still think how much I would love to have been around when that, when she was writing that <laughs> and, and the whole aspect of the whole story in itself. I did some literature um, reviews on it in, in college and stuff. And it's way more than just Frankenstein. It's the whole aspect of the, the story around it. But I think it's, it's amazing that you get the opportunity and it basically landed in your lap. How crazy is that? Would you have been totally nervous if you had known he had set that up as an interview for you and it wasn't just a casual hey get to know you oh my gosh you you're this person let me pick your brain (laughs) yeah i'm sure i would have been that would have probably been a wreck yeah yeah i love it i love opportunities like that when you don't know they're there and then they just come along so it looks like the universe is smiling on you very well so (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, it's been good so far but here's the deal this is what i'm hearing from you though is you are taking chances you're putting yourself out there you're not like just sitting back and writing at your computer at home and just kind of hit like you said publish and just waiting for things to come your way you're putting yourself in places where that there's opportunity for that. Um, if you had not gone to that actual conference and were sitting there selling your books, that opportunity would have came, you know, to you. So, so it's, yeah, I mean, as an author, you, I mean, the one thing I've always got in the back of my mind is every year there's a million books that are published, whether it's traditional or indie and, and you may have one. So you've got to figure out what you're going to do to make your one title stand out yeah. among that, you know, the other 999,999. Yeah, um, and it's 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 not easy. So you have to you know watch for those opportunities. Don't be afraid to ask. Um, you know, worst case, somebody's just going to say no. I mean, with the Stephen King thing, most people probably wouldn't have done that. Exactly. But I figure, you know, worst case, he's going to just say no. Don't you know? Leave me alone. Yep. You know, and exactly. I'm right back where I started from. So exactly. no harm, no foul. I love it. You're 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 exemplifying my word for the year for myself. I chose in January of 2017, so we're going into my full year of this word. I decided that when I was going to announce that I was going to start writing and I was going to do a podcast, I was going to become fearless. And I incorporated that word into everything I do now. And it's hilarious because my husband's watching me just, you know, step into these arenas. He's like, I never thought you would ever do this. I never thought when you said you were going to do a podcast, I wasn't quite sure what you were really going to do it. (laughs) But no, if you don't get yourself, if you don't push yourself into places, you're never going to get where you want to go. And you must have a very clear vision of where you would like to see yourself. And you're, you're, those opportunities are coming to you because you've opened yourself and said, I'm going to do this. So I love that part of it. I love it. So let's talk and we're, and then we're going to probably end up the podcast. So listeners, we're going to have a little bit different format. So JD won't be reading. Um, We're going to leave that up to you to go find his books and you can find them on the show notes and read them for yourself. Um, We're just very privileged to have JD take the time out. Oh, we did want to talk about this too, but it's very busy schedule. So before we end the podcast, JD and I were talking a little bit about before recording about the process of having his books translated into different um, languages and being published in different languages in different countries because it adds a whole different element to the timeline and how busy he is. So, J.D., why don't you share that with our listeners, too? Um, So, us as aspiring authors, we get a kind of a feel of how crazy it can be once you start publishing into different countries and languages. Yeah, it's it's a crazy amount of work, and I, I don't think you know everybody realizes that. I mean, most people, you know, they've got this romantic image in their mind of what a writer does all day, and you know, to a large extent, I mean, a part of it's true. I mean, I wake up at like eight o'clock in the morning, and I wander, you know, <laughs> ten feet down the hallway to my office with my cup yeah. of coffee. So my yeah. my commute's pretty short. You know, I don't yeah. usually run into traffic. Yeah, um, I have the same but, but I work from home. <laughs> yeah, but you you have to learn how to juggle things, and one of the things that I I had to do is I, I turn off my internet um, until about noon mm-hmm. every day. Nice. Um, I, I, knock on my, I knock on my words first thing in the morning, so I, I don't look at social media, I don't look at emails, I don't look at anything. I, I, oh, I, 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 I hit the ground writing. 
Um, yeah. I, I tend to, I don't get up from my desk from the writing process unless I know what my next sentence is going to be. Um, mm-hmm. And I find that as long as I do that, then my brain kind of continues the story as I go on with the rest of my day. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest mistakes I used to see back when I was doing the, you know, the book doctor thing is people would write until the well was dry. You know, mm-hmm. they, they crank out five, six, seven thousand words sometimes in a sitting, and then they just fall over exhausted. And then the next day, when you have to do it all over again, you know, they stare at a blank screen for hours, and they can't yeah. figure out what comes next. So Great. as long as you get up, you know, in, 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 even if it's mid-sentence, you know, as long as you know what's coming next, you know, your brain will keep working for you. And, you know, I, I go on a five-mile run every day, and you know, times like that, it, my mm-hmm. brain is working out the story details. So when I sit down again, I you know immediately just start typing. Um, so I basically write until about 12 o'clock every day. I shoot to get two to 3,000 words done every day um, on whatever novel I'm currently working on. Uh, then at noon, I, I have lunch really quick, and then I turn on the Internet, and that's where the, the real mess kind of starts. Oh, yes, to it does. Um, <laughs> and when, when you're published just in the U.S., you know, you've got you know, your book comes out, and you've got you know, interviews with traditional press. You've got bloggers. You've got podcasts, things like that that you have to do um, to, get the word, to get the word out. Uh, but when you're published in other countries, that cycle repeats itself. Um, you know, the book tends to come out in the U.S. first, and then maybe two, three months later, it'll come out, you know, somewhere else, and then it comes out somewhere else and somewhere else. And, you know, sometimes it's like a simultaneous release in the U.K., and, you know, it's just you're, you're all over the place. And every single time, you've got a new influx of people asking you questions and, you know, vying for your time. There's only so much time in the day. Mm-hmm. So I, I always tell people just, you know, like in my case, I make sure I get the words done every day because if there isn't the next book, you know, all this stuff comes to a crashing hold. Exactly. Um, so the, the next next book is my number one focus. It may not be the number one focus of my publishers or the you know the, the media people that I'm talking to, um, but it has to always be mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I try to keep that in mind. Um, yeah, I've got a new element that's happening now, which are cool because now there's a lot of travel involved. I think I've got um, in October. I'm going to be in like four or five states um, within like a week here in the mm-hmm. U.S. And then we head overseas to Dublin and the U.K. Um, and then we come back and we do you know even more here in the U.S. And mm-hmm. I have a really hard time writing when I'm away from my desk. I'm still trying mm-hmm. to figure that out. You know, when mm-hmm. whether I'm on a plane or I'm in a hotel. Um, that, that part gets tricky, but the, the yeah. deadlines don't change. You know, no, nobody yeah. else cares, you know, what, what you're up to. The yeah, they don't care. Your deadline's there, right? And writing on a yeah, plane is miserable. I don't know if anybody's tried it. I have many times, and I'm like, this isn't functioning for me. Of course, I don't sit in first class. I don't know about you. So there's not a lot of room to bring my laptop out to start with. <laughs> you know, so it's like, yeah, miserable. Yeah, I'm always worried about that person peeking over my shoulder. And, like, and they probably don't care what I'm doing, but oh, you know, me too. I just I'm feel paranoid. like somebody. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyways. So awesome. So continue. I'm sorry, I interrupted. So so I love the that you start your day, you shut off the internet. I, I'm loving this. It's fantastic. Um so there's a lot of things that get into your head when when you're writing and you know you've got like I, I tend to read almost all my reviews. I, I hit Goodreads, you know, sometime during the day and I tend to read everything that comes out and you know a lot of people will tell you that's a no no. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for the most part, my reviews are good and it, it helps keep me going and sort of like fueling the fire a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's a lot of distractions out there. I mean, you hit one bad review and then that can derail you or I've, mm-hmm. I've got um, two movies and a TV show that are in the works right now. And, you know, you get phone calls from people involved with that and, you know, that's a whole other animal because they, they take your book and they, you know, they have to change it to fit whatever the media is. Um, you know, so for like fourth monkey, you know, but one of the conversations I had over and over again is, okay, this is what we're going to have to do to get this book down to a two hour feature film. You know, this character has got to come out, this storyline has to change, this has to happen. Um, so when you've got other people telling you how they're going to adapt your story, those things get in your head. Oh my um, goodness. It's, it's, it's a tricky thing. So you have to, you know, the focus just always has to be on that next book, just getting that wow. next book done and everything else is just, just noise. Great advice. And also I'm hearing, be careful what you wish for people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because as much of us, all of us want to sit there, we want to live this life that you're portraying right now. I'm sitting there going, I don't know if I could, you know, if I had a movie offer and they're telling me I have to kill a character out or not have that character. I don't know if I can handle that. You know, you would need to handle it, but I'm not sure if I could <laughs> as the creator. Of well, the book. I think it was in, um, on, on writing Stephen, Stephen King is kind of like my go-to guy because he's, oh, he's yeah. kind of got this okay. down. I, I tend to follow the people that have done it right. And I, I try to emulate them as much mm-hmm. as I can. And, mm-hmm. and I think it was on writing, but he mentioned that the only thing that is actually yours as the author is the written book. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that print version is yours. Cause even the second an, an audio book narrator gets a hold of it. Now you've got yeah. their take on your book. So it's already yeah. different. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and with, you know, fourth monkey and those guys, you know, we, we had those, you know, I always wanted a feature film until you start talking to directors and they start telling you those things. <laughs> um, then I, then I started leaning very heavily towards, you know, Netflix and HBO because they were yeah. kind of the opposite. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. well, we can do five to ten episodes and we can tell your whole story. You know, what did you take out of the book? What other material do you have can we, that we mm-hmm. can put in here? Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, with Fourth Monkey, we, we went with CBS because they gave us both. Uh, they were oh. able to do a feature film with the follow-up television show. So Fantastic. There was no way, yeah, there was no way to say no to that. No, and then no. with, with um, Dracul, Paramount picked up the, the film rights um, that actually sold before the print rights did. Fantastic. Uh, and it's the same team that remade uh, It for Stephen King. So Andy mm. Machete is directing um, Very that, that's in really good hands over there too. Super great. Super great. Yeah. I do love Netflix originals though. I think that from what I've seen in Netflix originals, they translate so well because it feels like Netflix producers have a lot more leeway in, in some things. And, and I actually fall in love a lot of Netflix originals. Um, that's probably where I need to stop watching and start writing. Cause I'm like, <laughs> Gosh, these are so good. I gotta stop. Yeah. So, so awesome. get turned off right with the internet. It's you know that's that's really powerful advice, and I really appreciate it. Um, everybody, you know, I talk to a lot of people, and a lot of people know that I work from home. I have a steady full time job, but I re- work remote. And they're like, "Well, you should have plenty of time to write." And I'm like, "Well, no, I I'm on the phone with meetings all day, and you know, I have to be online and la la la." But I know there's times in my day where I couldn't shut off because since I started the podcast, I now have had to be on social media a whole lot more than I ever thought I would ever be in my life. And it's preparing me for my future because I believe that one of my books will be, you know, out there and it'll be, it'll be my thing and I can leave my day job <laughs> and just write. Well, um, let me ask you a question. Do you, do you write and work on the podcast and, and do your day job all from the same desk? Um, no, I actually, most of the day I, I split between the two. I have a whole different area that I work with, with the podcast productions and writing and my work desk is separate. I try to keep them separate in my mind. Um, yeah, that's that's I, important too. Because, I go crazy. <laughs> yeah. And well, it's, it's tough when you work from home because mm-hmm. if you're trying to write a book in the same seat where you normally work from home, you know, you're, you've got post-it notes around your things related to that job and there's yeah. distractions there. Yeah, um, so I always tell people if, if they're going to be, you know, trapped in the same place all the time you know, have, have a separate spot where you do your writing like that's the only thing that you do there yeah uh, and that helps quite a bit to just isolate yourself yeah and, and I love the fact that you brought out the idea that you get away and you exercise and you you do the physical aspect too because I I from working from home I'm going on my seventh year working from home I discovered that it's very sedentary and my other jobs were not and so I had to force myself to put in my routines of eating well and exercising well to keep my creative voice going so when I do get the moments to write I'm I'm having the moments because I've been out and I've been creative I've been physically active too so so very very good points I love it so awesome, awesome. Let's finish up the podcast um, with what you have on the future because you are working on something very with somebody very famous also. Not that Stephen King was not for heaven's sakes. That's amazing. <laughs> but tell us about what's on the works for you to pique our listeners' um, interests and um, then we'll close out the podcast. Yeah, so it comes down to that whole capturing lightning in a bottle thing. And, you know, after some of those things happened, I figured that that was, that was it again. Um, but my, my phone rang, um, I guess it was probably in November or so last year. Um, and it was a number from Florida that I didn't recognize. And I picked up on it and fully expected it to be a telemarketer. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll mess with them just to, to see if I can make them cry. Um, <laughs> trying, trying to get them off my phone, but just something to break up the day a little bit. Um, it, it, turned, it turned out to be Jim Patterson. Okay. Um, he, he, he read fourth monkey and he, he loved it. Um, he actually gave me a really cool blurb where he called it ingenious. Um, and then he invited me down to his house in Florida to talk a little bit. Um, and I ended up doing that over, over Christmas last year. I got a tour of his house and his office and we went out to lunch and we decided to, to collaborate and write something together. Um, so we, that's what we've been working on. We, we went back and forth a couple of weeks on, you know, just bouncing ideas and trying to come up with something that we both liked. Uh, and then we just, you know, we hit the ground running with it and it's, it's a fantastic project. I mean, I'm you know, able to work with one of the masters and yeah, I'm just, I feel like I'm back in school again. I love that part of it. That's the part I was going to ask you about. Cause I know he does a lot of like master classes where you can, you know, go in and learn from him, from the craft and that kind of a thing, but not many people are going to get a one-on-one sort of mentorship in an actual co-writing opportunity with him. So I, 
am so excited for you in that aspect. And I'm also excited to read the book, but um, how has it changed you in a sense? You know, I mean, as far as, cause you've already had some great success. So now you're working with one of the masters. How has it changed you just in immediate changes if there aren't? Well, I, I've been really lucky. And like at, the, at this point, I don't really have to take on anything unless it's something I really want to do. Mm-hmm. And with working with somebody like Patterson, I, mean, I just couldn't pass it up just because like, you know, like I said, it's like going back to school and he, he's teaching me, you know, a lot of things I just, I never really would have thought about before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, simple stuff sometimes, you know, like if you've got a, a scene and you've got people eating dinner, um, you know, it might go on for a couple paragraphs or a page or whatever. And, and he'll look at it and say, well, you, why is it so long? You just, they ate dinner. That's like, <laughs> you can sum it up. In, you can sum it up in three words. Like you don't need all of these extra words. Yeah. And I, I talked to uh, Lee Child once about this at, at Thriller Fest. He's always out there in the hallways and he'll answer pretty much any question you want. And one of the things that he preaches is that you should write the, the fast stuff slow and the slow stuff fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's a slow scene, you know, get it over with, get it you know, out of that book as quickly as possible with the least amount of words. If it's a faster scene, um, you know, you can stretch it out a little bit mm-hmm. and you know, it, all it comes down to pacing and patterson like if every chapter doesn't you know add something to the book if it's not moving that story forward at you know 99 miles per hour it doesn't need to be there or it's got to be changed you know if you you get to the end of the scene and you write something that's expected you know your characters are doing what the reader thinks they're going to do it needs to be twisted it's got to be something different it's got to be the unexpected Mm-hmm. And um, that's just kind of what I'm taking away from it. I mean, and this book has got so many twists and turns in it. It's got my head space. Yeah, and it's, I, I can't wait to sit down and write the next one on my own again, just taking some of these things up yeah. and putting it in there. And that's what I love about his books because being a writer, it's really hard for me to read some books because the plot turns are so obvious <laughs> or I can't watch specific movies. I'll get into them like, oh man, I found five different holes in that baby, <laughs> you know, right out first right. First two minutes, so I I think it's very exciting and and um, I I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom with us, um, and I hope it inspires other aspiring authors or even people that are have already published one or two books of publishing. I hope I hope they hear this podcast and they they get inspired from you, and I do hope you land here in the Pacific Northwest, so then you'll be closer, so you and I can connect face to face someday. <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually going to be out there. I got invited to to do the uh, keynote at the Chanticleer um, Writers Conference um, okay. right outside of Seattle in April. Okay, um, fantastic. I'll area again sometime soon and, and talking about a lot of these, these similar things because it's really yeah. geared towards writers. Well, fantastic. Well, we will keep our eyes out for that because I know that a lot of my listeners are in this greater Seattle area. They may even be at that conference and they'll have had a little bit of a preview of what you'll be talking about. They listen to the podcast. So that's fantastic. And and I'll promote that for you um, on all of my stuff when you know the details about it. Send it my way and I'll make sure I get it out. Um, So thank you, JD, for taking the time. I know you're super busy. I appreciate it. You coming to the podcast and listeners find us work because I think we're, we're, we're talking to one of the new masters that's coming out. So grab his work, read it, do reviews. He probably doesn't need to read, you know, lots of reviews because he's doing great, but I'm sure he'd appreciate it. And thanks again. You can never have too many reviews. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for much, so much for having me. I appreciate it. So one final note, podcast listeners, I wanted to remind you now that we're in the middle of October that um, the Salau Review from Laura Columbia College is an award-winning literary and visual arts magazine, and they are currently in the month of October accepting literary art submissions. You can find information about it in the show notes. If you live in the Laura Columbia region, I encourage you to um, send a submission for their volume 19. If you're selected... Um, to be in the Salau Review, let me know. Keep in touch with me on social media, and I'll have you on the podcast this summer. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hoped you loved hearing from the author as much as we did. If you did enjoy the author, make sure you find them on social media. Buy their book and write a review. Are you a published author and would like to be featured on the podcast? visit us at our website to learn more. You can help support the production of this podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Share the podcast with your friends. And most importantly, become a supporter. Supporters receive monthly bonus podcasts and a newsletter filled with tips from our authors. To find out more how to become a supporter, visit our website. 
And finally, I hope you always remember to enjoy the journey. Until next week, this is Vicki J. Carter saying goodbye. Goodbye.